Well, we'll be in Acts chapter 2 tonight. We will continue our series through the book of Acts as we look at a church in action. We missed a week last week as we closed out our anniversary celebration. Now we're ready to get back at it, pick up where we left off, keep forging ahead. And we've already been four weeks in this chapter and we've studied the first four verses. Amen. Boy, that sounds like Genesis so far. Amen. So there's too much to try and recap is what I'm saying, and so we won't get to recap it, but if you missed any of the messages, they're out there for you to listen to, and you can get caught up on what you might have missed, or maybe it was so good you wanted to listen to it again. Um, Yeah. (laughs) Remember that Acts chapter 2, it's the record of the day of Pentecost. Pentecost means 50th. It's the 50th day from Passover here. It's my personal belief that this is not a record of the birth of the New Testament church, but it is not said to minimize the significance of the event of this chapter of this great day in church history. After Jesus ascended, the followers of Christ were being obedient to what he had told them to do. They were waiting in Jerusalem to be endued with power from on high. We saw that when they were all in one accord, all in one place, God rushed in. They were filled with the Holy Ghost. And God crowded them out. And I think that's the key when we talk about being baptized in the Holy Spirit, that there is no more of us because we have been submerged, immersed into the Holy Ghost. And so all that is left is Him. And there appeared unto them cloven tongues like as fire. They began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And we talked a lot about what utterance means and what a great word that is, actually. And ever since, at least since the Bible's been in print, I would guess maybe earlier, there's been debate over what it means to speak in tongues. I don't really know what the big deal is, but we'll cover that as we go through this chapter. But let's pick up this account this morning. (laughs) This morning. Let's pick up this account tonight by reading verses 5 through 21. And there were dwelling at Jerusalem Jews, devout men out of every nation under heaven. Now when this was noised abroad, the multitude came together and were confounded because that every man heard them speak in his own language. They were all amazed and marveled, saying one to another, Behold, are not all these which speak Galileans? And how hear we every man in our own tongue wherein we were born? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and dwellers Mesopotamia and Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia and Egypt, and in the parts of Libya round uh, about Cyrene and strangers of Rome, Jews and proselytes, Cretes and Arabians, we do hear them speak in our tongues the wonderful works of God. They were all amazed and were in doubt, saying one to another, what meaneth this? Others mocking said, these men are full of new wine. There's really no sense in reading to verse 21. We're not even going to get to verse 13. So when I sit down to study, I I, obviously I put the verse I think we're going to get through, and then I sometimes forget to go back and change it in my notes. So that's why I originally thought we we would read to verse 21, but really we're only going to get to verse 7. We see in verse 5, there were devout Jews dwelling in Jerusalem out of every nation under heaven. Because of the past captivities, 
that Israel went through in the Old Testament, they were a part of God's judgment for their rebellion against God. They had been scattered throughout the known world, a great many. And we must admit that it is a result of God's providence that during the time of this miraculous outpouring of God's Spirit upon His people, that there were Jews present in Jerusalem from every nation, the Bible says. This is remarkable that God orchestrated it this way, because when Jesus gave the Great Commission, He said, Go ye therefore and teach all nations. And who was the gospel to go to first? To the Jew first and also to the Greek or to the Gentiles. And so here we have all these nations represented by Jews. They get the gospel first. And I just find it fascinating how God put all this together in making all these nations present on the day that His Word is going to be so effectively preached. It is said that these from other nations were dwelling in Jerusalem. The Greek word here for dwelling, it means they occupied a residence in Jerusalem for an extended time. It really has the idea that they were permanently dwelling in Jerusalem. And it's distinct from the other word, which would mean a transient dwelling place. When we think about the events of Passover and Pentecost, there would have been a lot of people that traveled in for just a short period of time, and they would have left. But, but these men here, they're mentioned specifically as being more permanent dwellers in Jerusalem. We know from verse 8 that these men were not born in Jerusalem. So what caused them to be dwellers in Jerusalem away from their birth nation and now living in Judea? Well, we see that these mentioned here were devout men which means they were religiously pious men. They had a reverential fear of God. They were careful in all of their observances. And they lived circumspectly as a result. Luke 2.25 speaks of a devout man. Behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. The same was just and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Ghost was upon him. This group of men were not just present because they were staying for a time to celebrate the Passover and then Pentecost, but these were men who were serious about their religion. And it's, I'm setting the table for the main point. It, it's important you understand these were permanently in Jerusalem, they, they were dwelling in Jerusalem, and they were devout men. They understood what they believed. They were serious about it. This was not a game to them. They weren't just traveling to Jerusalem for the high holiday in hopes of high-fiving their buddies. It wasn't just a Sunday morning church service for these guys. All right, I'm trying not to meddle, but they were, they, were, they were serious. And because these men were devout, they were more inclined to be dwellers in Jerusalem in order to observe the requirements of the ceremonial law more closely. But it's also probable that these men were dwellers in Jerusalem because they wanted to be taught by the most renowned teachers, the best rabbis, be in the best schools. We see the same thing today. People go to different seminaries scattered throughout the country. They go there to learn because they want to be taught in this particular institution. It would have been no different in those days. 
It is also believed that a great many of devout Jews were now dwelling in Jerusalem. This is good because they were anticipating the appearing of the Messiah. Think about that. Obviously, they they missed the Christ of the cross at first, but they could have done the math from Daniel chapter 9. Well, the Messiah should be showing up soon. And so a lot of these devout men, they would relocate to Jerusalem because in their minds, their idea of the Messiah was about to come on the scene. His kingdom was going to be set up. Now, of course, they were looking for an earthly kingdom. Luke 19.11, And as they heard these things, he added and spake a parable because he was nigh to Jerusalem and because they thought that the kingdom of God should immediately appear. So this was already buzzing around even when Jesus showed up that, hey, we should be finding the Messiah here at some point. He should be showing up. His kingdom should be coming. We should be taken out of Roman rule. And, hey, we're going to be back in power again. Well, this mindset caused a lot of the zealous and devout Jews to be dwellers in Jerusalem in hopes that they might have an early share in the blessings of the kingdom of the Messiah. And just a quick application here, I want to just say, don't let this term devout scare you off. Don't let it be sold in your mind because of the organized religions of our day. We need devout Christians. We need to be sold out for Christ. We need to be reverent. We need to live circumspectly. We need to be serious about our Christianity. Ephesians 5, 15 and 16. See then that ye walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time, because the days are evil. In Acts chapter 10 and verse 2, Cornelius is called a devout man and one that feared God with all his house, which gave much alms to the people and prayed to God always. Well, that's a pretty good definition of what it means to be devout. He feared God. He gave financially. He was always praying. In Acts chapter 22 and verse 12, Ananias, the man who helped Saul after he was converted, is called a devout man according to the law, having a good report of all the Jews which dwelt there. So we can add these to the definition of being devout. They obeyed God's law. They had a good report among people. Now, just to be clear, being devout does not make a person saved. Cornelius was devout but lost. Saul would have been considered devout but lost. We'll see later in the book of Acts that the Jews would stir up devout men and women to bring persecution against Paul. But to those of you who are in Christ tonight, which is a great many of us, can you say that you are a devout follower of Christ? Are you fearing God? Do you give financially? Are you always praying? Are you obeying God's word? Do you have a good report by those you are around the most? It almost sounds similar to five to thrive. Verse six, now when this was noised abroad, the multitude came together and were confounded because that every man heard them speak in his own language. They were all amazed and marveled, saying one to another, behold, are not all these which speak Galileans? We, we see here in verse six that... Word began to spread. Something was happening. This caused a great multitude of these devout and learned men to begin to gather together in a big crowd. And and what I see here is there are times that when God is at work, that it will cause a city to stand up and take notice. Something's going on over there at Liberty Baptist Tabernacle. 
You see, what we find here is a church in action. God is working through them, in them, and as He is in this miraculous way, the city is forced to take notice that something miraculous is taking place in Jerusalem. We've never seen this take place. Not in, I haven't, but I want to. How great would it be to be part of a move of God that is so powerful that even the city is wanting to cover what's taking place? The news outlets show up. Boy, we can't really explain it, but there's 15,000 people just showed up at 1515 Space Avenue. It'd be wonderful to see God at work so that the inhabitants of our area, they would begin to gather together to see what in the world is going on. And they were confounded because they heard these disciples of Jesus speaking to them in their own language. This word for confounded is also translated into English as being confused, being stirred up, and to be put in an uproar. This isn't just being puzzled, but to be confounded here means that they were agitated about it. They're seeing this miraculous work and they're not necessarily initially here praising God. Something's going on. I want to know what's going on, but what's going on? We're the devout men. We're the learned men. We see in verse 7 that they were not only confounded, but they were amazed. They became astounded. This word for amazed literally means they were beside themselves. It was like they were going crazy in amazement. It literally means to be out of their wits. They also marveled, which means they wandered in admiration. And as I was studying these three words, it seems to me that there's a chance that what was taking place was almost a progression here among these men. That at first, they were confounded and they were agitated. They became in an uproar, almost being in a riot situation. But then it seems to shift to them being beside themselves in amazement. But then they're looking on in wonder and admiration. Can you kind of sense that maybe there's a progression here? At first it's like they're mad. Then they're just like, what? And then they're like, whoa. It's almost like they go from, who do you think you are up in here? We're the devout men. We have the letters after our name. We're educated. What is it you think you're doing? It's like it goes from that to wait a minute, this is actually pretty amazing what's taking place here. To, wow, I am absolutely astonished at what I've just seen take place. And so it's like they go from being mad to being impressed to being in awe. This is what I see. And, and, and notice their reasoning for their reaction at the end of verse 7. They were all amazed and marveled because all who were speaking to them in their own language were Galileans. This is why it's so important that the Bible says that they were devout Jews dwelling in Jerusalem this day. Because now they're looking at all that's taking place and they're going, these are Galileans. 
The Galileans were Israelites from Galilee. <laughs> Amen. That was the region north of Jerusalem. And depending on the route you took, you might have to go through Samaria. In fact, we find Jesus doing that in John chapter 4. I must needs go through Samaria to speak to the woman at the well as he was making his way to Galilee. To give you a reference point, Jerusalem is maybe 70 miles south, 70 to 75 miles south of the Sea of Galilee. So that would have been the distance from, Gal- from the Galileans to the Judeans, somewhere in that ballpark. Now, the reason these devout Jews were so confounded, amazed, and marveling is because Galileans were despised by the Jews in Jerusalem. Portions of Galilee were very different than Jerusalem. There were so many differences, really. When you really start to look at this and break down these two people groups, even though they're they're both of Jewish descent... The, the differences here are pretty amazing. The Galileans, they were different racially. A lot of the Galileans had become intermixed with the Gentiles. Because back there, about 800 years or so before the times of Christ, the Assyrians had come in, taken over the region, taken the house of Israel captive, and there was a lot of intermingling that was beginning to take place between the Gentiles and the children of Israel. So there were some racial differences. In the days of Christ, they were under different jurisdictions. In Jerusalem, Pilate was the governor. You might remember this as we were going through the Gospel of John. Pilate was the governor in Jerusalem, but Herod was the tetrarch of Galilee. And so they had differences politically as a result. And in general, the Galileans were typically more resistant to Roman rule. The Galileans are almost kind of like the good old boys. They were resistant to what Rome was doing in their area. In Acts chapter 5, Gamaliel, he'll stand up in the council and he'll talk about, if this is of God, you can't stop it. And in that process, he says, don't you remember there was a man called Judas of Galilee? And this man from Galilee, he led an uprising. And it's likely from that group that followed Judah of Galilee that... Luke chapter 13 mentions was part of the people that Pilate killed when he intermingled the blood with the sacrifice of the Galileans. And so there was this seditious move from the Galileans. They were more conservative politically. They were different economically. The majority of the Galileans were composed of lower class, hardworking day labor farmers and fishermen. The fishermen... And the farmers, this low class of people, they had calluses on their hands. They were hard workers. They were looked down upon by the white collar. These blue collar guys. These hard workers. And and they were different. The Galileans were different, different linguistically. They had a different dialect. They had a different way of speaking. And because of that, they were generally thought as being backwards and unsophisticated. When Jesus was on trial and Peter was around the fire, remember how a maid identified Peter as a Galilean because of how he spoke. In Mark's account we read, Surely thou art one of them, for thou art a Galilean, and thy speech agreeeth thereto. 
In Matthew's account, it says, Thy speech berayeth thee, or it gives you away. You're a Galilean. I can tell by how you're talking. They had differences educationally. The Jews to the south were better educated, and because of this, they thought themselves superior to the Galileans to the north. Listen to this in John chapter 7, verses 50 through 52. Nicodemus stands, he's, he's speaking kind of to the council, the chief priests, Pharisees, and, and it says, Nicodemus saith unto them, and then in parentheses it says, he that came to Jesus by night being one of them, and then it picks back up, Nicodemus says, doth our law judge any man before it hear him and know what he doeth? They answered and said, the Pharisees that were in this group answered and said back to Nicodemus, art thou also of Galilee? Search and look, for out of Galilee ariseth no prophet. What were they saying? Well, understand, Nicodemus was a very learned man. He was a Pharisee. And the Bible says he was a ruler of the Jews. This man was in high position, which means he was well-educated. But when the chief priests and the other Pharisees didn't really like Nicodemus' response, they insulted Nicodemus' education by asking, Art thou also a Galilean? Come on, Nicodemus, for crying out loud, search the Scriptures. You can't be as dumb as the Galileans are. This is how they felt about their neighbors to the north. Acts 4.13, Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John who were from Galilee, doesn't say that I added that, but they were from Galilee. When they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were unlearned and ignorant men, they marveled. And they took knowledge of them that they had been with Jesus. So simply stated, the culture in Galilee and the culture in Judea were so far apart. The Jews of Judea really looked down at the Galileans. John 1, 45 and 46, Philip findeth Nathanael and saith unto him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and the prophets did write, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said unto him, Can there any good thing come out of Nazareth? Which was in Galilee. Philip saith unto him, Come and see. It reminds me of how many people view the people of Appalachia today as a bunch of uneducated hillbillies. A bunch of backwards speaking people. Too stupid to be able to go out and preach the gospel. It's becoming less of an issue in our day because our society is becoming so mobile. But I always tease at our house, there's one people group you can still pick on and the media won't get on to you for being hateful, and that's the hillbillies. And it's something I can relate to very well having come of age in southern Appalachia. All of those differences I mentioned, they still exist today. And people who are more refined are often turned off by someone who thinks they sound uneducated just because we boil our peanuts. Because we can own a car and turn on a light. Because we can get tired when changing the tires. You know, I've been amazed lately. This is just gee whiz. The home missions conference we've been attending over in Sioux Falls the last two years, the amount of men that came out of that area that are in this region today, it's, it's almost alarming. I mean... I was dumbfounded by how many people are just from my county where I grew up. And then I ended up talking to a man. He said, you would not believe the amount of men between Alabama and Georgia, where I, it's right where I grew up, 
And he said, there are so many men from that area that are up here right now. I don't understand it. We're going to have one of them here. He, he's from Cartersville, right down the road from where I first preached. And um, he'll be here in January. But it's just amazing that a lot of people hear that and they say, well, you're just uneducated. You don't know anything. Listen, we, we had a couple visit here a few years ago and they said, we're not going to attend that church because the song leader's from the South and the preacher's from the South. What kind of sense does this make? And listen, it works both ways. I've been in the South long enough, especially down there in South Mississippi, we had a Yankee preacher. And boy, if you're a good old boy, you don't want some guy from the North telling you how to live. So it goes both ways is what I'm saying. So it's not unique um, to any one area. It's really just we get in these little modes of we like people who are like us. I had a guy here one time. He said, uh, I moved to western South Dakota because I like to be around people that look like me. Now, I read between the lines. How about you? Despite how the Galileans were viewed by the Judeans, it was the Galileans who largely received Christ. While those in Judea largely rejected Christ. I see a lot of similarities there as well. In fact, it got so bad in Judea that Jesus at one point stopped walking in Judea because they wanted to kill him. But Jesus began his ministry in Galilee in fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy. It was after Jesus was baptized and tempted of the devil for 40 days in the wilderness. Luke chapter 4, verses 14 and 15, and Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit into Galilee. There went out a fame of him through all the region round about, and he taught it in their synagogues, being glorified of all. Matthew 4, 13 through 17, and leaving Nazareth, he came and dwelt in Capernaum, which is upon the seacoast in the borders of Zebulun and Nephilim, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, The land of Zebulun, the land of Nephilim, by the way of the sea beyond Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people which sat in darkness saw great light. And to them which sat in the region in shadow of death, light has sprung up. From that time, Jesus began to preach and to say, Repent. For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then at the end of Luke 4, it says in verse 44, he preached in the synagogues of Galilee. These backwards people that everyone despised. It was from Galilee where Jesus chose most of his 12 disciples. Jesus' first miracle was performed in Galilee. Jesus was well received in Galilee. John 4.45, then when he was coming to Galilee, the Galileans received him, having seen all the things that he did at Jerusalem at the feast, for they also went unto the feast. So get this picture in your mind. Here are these devout, educated Jews in Jerusalem witnessing these uneducated, unsophisticated, backwards-sounding Galileans speaking other languages so perfectly that they say in verse 8, and how hear we every man in our own tongue wherein we were born. These men all of a sudden, they're speaking like they're from there. Now what can we take away from all of this? When you think about this event logically, was it even necessary for them to speak in other languages for these men to understand? No. 
These men would have been fluent in both the Jews' language and the language of their homeland. They lived in Jerusalem. They would have known the language well. Many people in those days um, living in that region, they would have been fluent in Greek and Hebrew and Latin. Just like many today in Europe are fluent in several languages because of the, the countries that are so close to each other. Therefore, these tongues this day, they, they were not needed in order for them to understand the message being preached. So why would God do this in the manner in which He did? Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men. The weakness of God is stronger than men. For you see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God hath chosen the foolish things of this world to confound the wise. God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty. The base things of the world and the things which are despised hath God chosen. Yea, and the things which are not to bring to naught things that are. That no flesh should glory in His presence. God chose this event in the manner in which He did to confound the wisdom of these men who were wise in the world's eyes. What does Acts 2.6 say again? They were confounded. The Galileans weren't viewed as wise. They weren't considered of, of nobility. They were viewed as weak in comparison culturally. They were definitely despised by these devout Jews. But God chose them so that no flesh could glory in His presence. And I, I would say, listen to me tonight, church. We may be despised by the elites of this world. We may not come from nobility. God may have picked us out of Elk Valley. God may have picked us out of Paulding County. God may have picked us out of all these different areas where we're from. And, and people would look at us and they would think that we're weak-minded. You're too stupid and that's why you got to have a God because you're too weak-minded. God can use anyone who is wise enough to humble themselves before Almighty God. God resists the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. And it works backwards as well. Because if you're elevated like Nicodemus was, you might be here tonight and be very educated. You might have a position in life that requires great intelligence. But if you're a believer, you're going to be viewed simple by the other elites in your field. 2 Corinthians 4.7 but we have this treasure in earthen vessels that the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. Amen. If you feel like God can't use you because you're uneducated, because you don't speak eloquently, because you're looked down upon, you're a prime candidate to be used by God. The Father is seeking for those who will worship Him in spirit and in truth. He doesn't need your accolades. He doesn't need your education. God often works mightily through those of little learning. 
those backwards hillbillies. That Oliver B. Green would say, I would rather hear an uneducated hillbilly proclaim the blood of Christ than to hear a silver-tongued orator deny the blood. God wants you to have a broken heart and a contrite spirit. God will fill the willing vessel with His treasure, with His wisdom, with His strength, with His riches, so that the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. God wants it all about Him. And His grace is sufficient. His strength is made perfect in our weakness. And may we be able to say like the Apostle Paul, most gladly therefore will I rather glory in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in necessities, in persecution, in distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then am I strong. What group are you in tonight? Are you among those who think God is the one who should count Himself blessed because He's able to use someone as great as you? Some people have that attitude. Do you think it's all about you? Then you're too prideful. And God's not going to use you. But if you're among those who recognize that you are nothing apart from Christ, if you know you really have nothing to offer the Lord but that it is you who are blessed to be used by God. And God can use you for His honor and His glory. Are not all these that speak unto us Galileans? guy asked me once, how do you get your sermons? I said, I go to God. You You don't have a special book? You didn't go to a special school? Well, yeah, I have a special book. It confounded him. He left over it. It confounded him. Refused to believe that God would speak to people and give them the words. Listen, I want to tell you, God can use any of you. May we yield ourselves to God and allow Him to work through us to the point that the elites of this world will... What do they think they're doing over there? To what? Whoa, wait a minute. What's going on here? To, I can't believe what I'm seeing to what must we do to be saved listen God can use you we all have our stories God can use you let's pray